Hi, this is Marlene, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Whether you're watching a video or listening to a podcast, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. Links to videos or MP3 files can be found on MiamiGhostChronicles.com. Go to MarlenePardo.com for information on new book releases. I narrate several podcast series that can be found on major podcast platforms and can also be listened to via Alexa, Sonos, and other home systems. Look for Supernatural Storytime for scary storytelling, Nightshade Diary for classic horror and adventure stories, Stories of the Supernatural for interviews with different guests on the show. If you want to get noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy stories, and anything that is just plain weird, you can visit Strange Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com or find us on Blogspot. I want to thank you for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. Hi, everybody. This is Marlene with Stories of the Supernatural. How's everybody doing today? Good, I hope. I'm doing well. Everything is good here in my neck of the woods. Getting chillier. I know there's a little bit staggered, but we're about two, well, we're a week away from the new year. Believe it or not, we're going to be going into 2022 very, very shortly. I, I have to make reference to this. Sometimes I remember when Y2K was coming around, okay, where everybody was like, the computers are going to fail. The banking system is going to take a nosedive because none of this uh, will be able to handle the 2000 as of the 19. And here we are 20, oh, 22 years later. None of that came to happen. So it's like, but anyway, it's been a couple of weird years to go. So hopefully 2022 will be better. But anyway, guys, um, I've got no news from Chicken Kingdom. Uh, I, I've just been crazy. It's It's been cooler weather. Uh, like I said, everything's been good except me fighting off the, I don't know, I seem to have more predator birds uh, around the area where I'm at right now. So I spend a lot of time going out there to check on the, my because, you know, my whole flock is free range with the exception of some that I have caged for, for reasons because, you know, they're in therapy, you know, they've been hurt or something. So all of mine are, are free range. So I got to keep an eye on them because it's uh, me against the nemesis even though I know they're part of nature. Okay, but when you breed your, your your chickens like I do, you kind of take the side of the chickens. Let's face it, they're going to be on the losing end of that fight. But anyway, guys, let's get on to the good part. The good part is, oh, before I forget, please don't forget to sign up for my newsletter. Okay, and the reason why I'm saying this is on there, I write up some crazy articles, weird stuff, you know, whatever the case might be. I put links to related videos or podcasts that I have, and I also... We'll put on there any information as far as giveaways. If I have a new book that's coming out, anything like that, you're going to find it on my newsletter. And I only send it out once a week. Okay, so you're not going to get bombarded with uh, a bunch of emails. Plus, I, um, you know, uh, like I said, the last book I released in September, I gave 100 books away on uh, on Goodreads, and I announced it on my newsletter. So if... Um, if you want to, again, go to MarlenePardo.com or MiamiGhostChronicles.com and sign up for my newsletter. Let's get on to the good part. The good part is who we have as a guest today. This is the first time this gentleman has been on Stories of the Supernatural. 
His name is John Stedman. He is an author, a Lovecraft scholar, and a scholar of science fiction and fantasy literature. He's written two books, Alien Robots and Virtual Reality, Idols in the Science Fiction of H.P. Lovecraft, Isaac Asimov, and William Gibson from 2020, and H.P. Lovecraft and the Black Magical Tradition from uh, published in 2015. He's also published speculative essays, including Solaria and the Plight of the Millennials, Real and Fictional Vampires in Modern Times, Aliens, Extraterrestrial or Transdimensional, and H.P. Lovecraft and the Elder Sign. You know we're going to have a lot to talk to, to John about. Uh, he holds a Master in Education from the American Military University, a Master of Business Administration from the University of Wisconsin, a Master of Arts in English Languages and Literature from the University of Virginia, and a Bachelor of Arts in English from Michigan State University. Help me welcome him tonight. How are you doing today, John? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm on the contrary, my... it is my pleasure. Can you see I'm me? Looking at... Yeah, I'm just looking at my image. You know, like I'm 67 years old. When I was in my in graduate school, like this was like in the 90s, I was one of the most gorgeous looking men that you ever saw in your life. Uh -huh. look, I mean, look what happens to people over time. You know, I mean, all my beauties just fade away now. And okay. there's no escaping it. I'm telling you. I know, but it's <laughs> terrible. You know, I was I was absolutely in the 80s and the 90s. I was absolutely gorgeous. But I got a good family. You know, my daughter's 24 now and she's uh, prettier than I was when I was her age, you know, so that's consolation. I am a scholar and I have mm -hmm. written books. So this is a big dream of mine to be a, a professional writer. And I'm really okay. happy that I realized my dream. A lot of people never realize their dreams. No, they don't. I, can I plug them just for a minute? Just since you absolutely. About, yes, we'll of course. Talk, yeah. We'll talk about uh, anything else here. Let's get sure. Sure. Go right ahead. Okay. Uh, this nope, light there stuff. you go. Okay. Here it is. This is a mouthful, the aliens, robots, and virtual reality idols. It's a real mouthful of a title, but I kept playing around with different ways to do it, like maybe break it up into a subtitle. And I Didn't couldn't work. It, this kind of just stayed in my mind, so I did it this way. And then okay. this one here is the one where I look at H.P. Lovecraft's influence on the black magical systems, you know. So this was my first book. So it's been okay. fun writing these. I've got a third one. I'm shopping around right now. This one's going to be an interesting one. It's a little okay. bit more political. It's going to be a study of H.P. Lovecraft's racism. Lovecraft, right, yes. He was a terrible, terribly violent, vitrolic, white supremacist and racist. But and you what, know what? It's like, I want to say it, he was, but it's like, isn't it funny, though? People don't realize that sometimes genius is coupled with undesirable traits. I hate to say it, but... There it yes, is. But you know what's interesting about, you know, the more I delved into the field uh, of that particular aspect of Lovecraft, I realized that he uses his racism and his privilege and his, his uh, white fragility, which I call it white fragility. He uses mm -hmm. all that very cold-bloodedly and creative, creatively to actually uh, accomplish two purposes. One, he wanted to argue that Western civilization was in decline and that the main reason for that was not only unrestrained immigration, but also hybrids. Miscognition yes, between yes. Men, uh, blacks and whites and other races, and that was weakening and would eventually bring down Western civilization. In his earlier fiction, he has a narrative, the racist narrative called I call it the Miscognition narrative, where he actually deals with that issue and he tries to convince his readers uh, that it's a danger. It's a danger to the white race. And then his second goal was to actually argue that slavery is fully justified. Like in his major tales, he's got all these extraterrestrial and transdimensional aliens that are superior to mankind, and they're all slaveholders. And what, yes. he's, what he's arguing indirectly in those stories is 
if it's good enough, if slavery as an institution is good enough for extraterrestrial entities, they're actually superior to us in terms of intellect. And right. Else. Yeah. Even though in his stories, humans end up being the slaves, you know, the, or the slaves. The name yeah. of that third book is Cosmic Slave Masters in the Plantation Planet. The plantation mm -hmm. planet is Earth, planet Earth, and we're the slaves. You know, yes. so he, he says it's totally justified for them to enslave white Anglo-Saxons because they're superior to him. You know, so he's got some subtle agendas in, in his stories, and I explore that in full detail. At the end of that book, you're gonna if you if you like Lovecraft, you're gonna like him a little bit less. And if you hate, well, Lovecraft, you know what? What was that word him. he liked to use a lot? Swarthy. Yeah, swarthy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's, it's, yeah. it's it's actually the definitive book on the topic, you know, and I'm shopping around right now. So that's been kind of fun for me too, working on that yeah. one, you know, but yeah, it might be a that's tough the shot. thing. People don't realize that people pers you know, people are three dimensional in the, in the sense that it's not all good or not all bad. People are a mix. And sometimes, I mean, when you read his stories, considering that really he didn't have anything to, he was just going out there and his imagination, like, well, in his is in his day and age, of course, he was writing in the 1920s. Uh, there yeah. was such a thing as systemic racism in the 1920s. It was like all, most uh, white people back then were racist to a certain extent. Lovecraft was just a very extreme example, and I explain why he ended up being the kind of racist he was. It's a really interesting study. It might be a hard sell because a lot of people are trying to uh, misread Lovecraft. A lot of the kind, of, I call them woke academics. What they're doing, they know they can't cancel Lovecraft because he's too, he's uncancelable. But what they want to argue that he was actually uh, tortured. He had tortured self-awareness of being a racist. And he was trying to purge himself from it. Yeah, that's not true. And what they do, they like to, they, they're trying to kind of whitewash him. If you can, you're kind, you kind of, kind of also, if for like, I'm not going to say everybody, but also he's a product of his times. And yeah, you, as far as sensibilities are concerned and because yeah, I've read yeah. other authors contemporaneous to contemporary to him that also had that you read the stuff now and you're like, what? <laughs> well, you'll understand. If you read that book, you'll understand where it came from, why it was so violent and how he used it creatively. And I, I'm hoping that I'll be able to sell this book, but it's it's a very politically charged book, you know, and some people just might not go for, you know, so I'm going to test the wire, but I don't want to talk about that. Why? Well, no, but anyway, but, but, but you know what? I'm glad you mentioned that because. It is, you know, a lot of people like they, they bring that up about Lovecraft. But, you know, when you go into the other part, you know, his imagination with developing the Cthulhu mythos, you know, that whole miskatonic, uh, that whole realm that he had going that other people kind of stood on his shoulders. And sometimes, you know, after he died, kind of like used his uh, his world. Um Oh, yeah, he was out there. Go. He was the first of his kind when it came to certain ideas, which, by the way, I'm very interested in what you mentioned about as far as dark magic ties into the some of the mythos that he created with his stories. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, what he did was he actually, uh, he didn't really have a real profound knowledge of black magic or magical systems. He did read some of the text. Like in that first book, I explore what text he read, where he got his information from. But the influence is more like from him to, it's, it's looking at the modern black magical systems. I, I classify those as being like uh, the Wiccan religion. I consider them mm -hmm. to be black magic. Black magic is basically just magic that's devoted to knowledge and power, basically. Not, it's not mm -hmm. necessarily spiritual perfection, but it's knowledge right. and power. Primarily. And when I say knowledge and power, I don't mean bad knowledge or bad power. I just mean they're interested in those uh, 
agendas more than they are right. spiritual perfection. And so mm -hmm. uh, I would view the Wiccan religion, I would view the voodoo religion, sure. and then I would view the uh, Satanism, and I would view chaos magic, then Kenneth Grant's weird Typhonian magical system. I view those as like contemporary black magical systems. And the funny thing about Lovecraft, he's influenced these, but they didn't influence him that much. Because no. he, was a, he was an atheist. He was an atheist. He didn't believe in magic or spiritualism. But a lot of black magical systems have constructed a lot of their gods and goddesses and their rituals and stuff based on Lovecraft's work. So it's kind of a more of a one-way influence, you know. His influence on their systems, and he was opaque to them. They couldn't they couldn't influence him at all. He just didn't believe in that stuff. Right, and, right. It was the it wasn't like he was drawing anything from those magical beliefs or those you know rituals he was just trying to sell stories he was trying to oh yeah he was, well, which which unfortunately he didn't get any really true recognition till after he died was oh, when he, he really when he died he thought he was a failure he never yeah. got a book into print he thought he was a complete failure that he wouldn't be remembered after life luckily he had people that really loved him when he died like his good friend august derleth who actually yes. found, founded the arkham house publishers to actually for the sole purpose of getting lovecraft into hardcover book so you could say that august derlin kind of rescued lovecraft who knows you know we might not be having this conversation today if lovecraft hadn't been saved by august derlin and then by yes. scholars in the 70s he might have just been buried in the old copies of weird tales magazine nobody mm -hmm. would have him. and i might not i'm making a pretty good little living here writing these books about lovecraft i wouldn't be doing that now if he hadn't been if it wasn't for august derlin you know I'm, so I'm, what, I'm, what 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 got you interested in well, Lovecraft. What, what happened when I was young, I was always interested in magic and occultism. And mm -hmm. I was always interested in horror stories, ghost stories, things like that. And I just discovered Lovecraft by accident. I'd been looking for this book for a long time. I finally found it. It's this book here. I'm going to hold it up. I don't know if you okay. can see it. I feel see the color thing? out of space. The color out of space. And it's got like this flaming skull kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I went to this I went to this one uh, bookstore. It was called Read More Books. And I saw that book there with that skull on, and I always was on the lookout for horror stories, horror tales. And I saw that book, and I said, "Boy, the, a book that has a cover like that must have some really good stories." And you know, I was I was only like in uh, middle school when I first discovered Lovecraft, so I bought the book. I remember going up to school. I used to like reading in the playground of the old. Uh, elementary school that I went to because it was really peaceful there. I was sitting there reading. It was a beautiful summer day and I was read and I read the first story, which was a color out of space. And I swear that I was so terrified when I read that story. I mean, it was a hot, warm day and I'm sitting there and there's chills going up and down my spine. It was so scary. So I was hooked on Lovecraft after that point. And I liked him as much as I liked any kind of horror writer. And I'm mm -hmm. a, a scholar on them. But I always stayed in touch with Lovecraft. And then when I got a little older, I realized that Lovecraft, there's more profound things going on in Lovecraft than just finding complicated ways to make us uh, be scared. You know, he, he had right. very important agendas in his work. And so I started studying him more from a serious standpoint. But I never lost that initial attraction and love for, that I had for Lovecraft when, when I was in middle school. I mean, that always stays with me. Every time I read one of his stories, no matter what age that I reach, no matter how sophisticated I, I, or deeply I delve into his works. No, he's, he's quite, some of his concepts, the ideas that he had, when you look at them, you're like, wow, this was written 100 years ago or 90 years ago. That's incredible. Um, where he was just uh, drawing on different ideas as far as, uh, how can I say, 
Well, he was a he was content. He was a, a real scholar of science in his time, and he is a lot of his stories are up up to par, like with uh, contemporary cutting age quantum physics. Oh, there we go. I think we came back. Did yeah. we come back? Yeah. So he's yeah, very sophisticated. He's very sophisticated Let's in terms see. of his. Oh, are we all right? Are you there, John? Because I I'm, see you having trouble. I'm right here. Can you hear oh, me? Oh, okay. There we go. There we okay. go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he has very sophisticated view of the cosmos, and he's very sophisticated when it comes to, like, philosophical ideas. In fact, mm -hmm. I'm going to be touching upon that. I touched upon a little bit in the Aliens Robots uh, book, but I'm going to touch on that a little bit more. I got this racism book put to bed, so to speak, now, so I'm going to be working on that. But Lovecraft had some very serious purposes that he wanted to accomplish. One, he wanted to... Uh, give an accurate view of how he thought the cosmos was and uh, its eventual destiny. He wanted to talk about the nature of reality, which is where the mm -hmm. quantum physics comes in. He wanted to all talk, talk about the problem of human perception. And then finally, he wanted to talk about what exactly do we mean by being human. So these are all important philosophical, metaphysical, and uh, scientific questions. And he dealt with those in his, his works. You know, So I'm going to be dealing with that in a lot more detail now that I've finished that other book, I, I want to study that a little bit. I just touched upon some of those themes in that second book and the first one too, but I'm going to delve into that very deeply. Yeah, no, the people that understand that there's, you know, once you get into some of his stories, um, you know, he, he, you know, even if you go into, I mean, he just threw out the Adam and Eve kind of origins of man and he made his own like, Origins yeah. of man, or whatever you know, like well, the hybrids, like you said, and he just went out there. A, a complete, <laughs> he was a complete nihilist. You know, he didn't believe uh -huh. that man there was any real purpose in mankind. He felt that mankind's existence on this planet is going to be very brief, and he viewed yes. uh, it as uh, humankind being. I mean, humankind is just kind of their days are numbered, basically. It's a malefic cosmos. It's not sympathetic. Oh, yes. We're not the center of anything. There aren't any gods to protect us. You know, our day is going to be very small, and then we're going to be wiped out. We're going to be replaced by a more resilient or stronger, more robust species. So, you know, he his stuff, if you actually delve too deeply into it, it can be very depressing. It can be very, he, there's no hope in right. it at all. There's yeah, none, if you no escaped, hope. it was purely by your wits. Yeah, it wasn't yeah, but, like like you said. But, you know, you had like God intercede on your behalf and save you. Yeah, well, even he, though he, it was pretty clear cut about what was evil, still, yeah. if you got saved, you had to do it on your own. Somehow figure this out and get out of there. But, but he would argue you can't be saved anyhow. Like uh, in my alien, in my new book here, the second book, I talk about what Miku Kaku. He's actually uh, a uh, physicist. He came up with the uh, super string theory of physics, but. He came up mm -hmm. with the idea that it, the only hope for mankind is to become, or humankind, is to become a type four civilization. In other words, humans have to be able to break free of time and space, or otherwise we're doomed. I mean, it's a big, the big uh, bang, and then the big crunch. So eventually, our little universe is going to be destroyed unless we can free ourselves from the bounds of time and space. And Lovecraft, he was so pessimistic about this. He had some characters which i call magical personas what they do is they form some kind of uh, alignment or collusion with the great old ones or with extraterrestrial entities but uh it doesn't help them in the end usually oh no it always works <laughs> it always they have to pay at the end it, you yeah. know one of the themes of, of that book that second book is that all three of those offers asimuth lovecraft and gibson they all have a view of 
uh, their view of what a type four civilization is, where you become kind of a superhuman, homo sapien plus, I call it. But mm -hmm. for all of them, it's all pessimistic. They share all that in common. No matter what humans do, it's just not going to work out for them. Like in Asimuth, the robots try and make it easy for humans, but they end up proposing something called galaxia as opposed to galaxy, where it's a groupthink kind of thing. The humans right. here left aren't really humans at all. They're kind of like just uh, mindless zombie-like things, you know, where they all think the same, do the same thing. And then as for Gibson, Gibson views like 80% of humankind being killed by something called the jackpot in the near future. And he doesn't, his, his thing is pessimistic too. Like the type four people are plagued by drug addiction, disease, pandemics, and everything else. So neither one, none of these writers actually have a very positive view of, of mankind's longevity in the cosmos. Lovecraft is the worst, but the other two aren't that much better. Yeah, I know. Let me ask you about Asimov, because when you read Asimov, you always, you know, how he, his robot, his robots and his stories, they, how are they, they, they're, Either well, they're, they're sentient or human well, what, beings want to make them sentient. How's that? Well, what they did, they developed, the robots developed something called the positron brain. And what it is, it's actually real artificial intelligence. A lot of the scientists today talk about artificial intelligence. And we don't have artificial intelligence yet because there has to be some form of intelligence. I mean, you can program a robot to clean your room or whatever, and you can say mm -hmm. that it's artificial intelligence, but it's really not unless it can actually think for itself. And we just don't have that yet. In Asmus things, the robots actually are artificially intelligent. So what they can do, they can actually reason themselves. And what they, they're, they're actually programmed in a way with the three laws of robotics where they can't really harm human beings. It's right. kind of a fail-safe fail kind of thing. Uh, robot cannot, and it's actually hardwired mathematically into them, but it's actually written out in terms for us to understand. It's the three laws of robotics. But one of them is like a robot can injure or cause a human being to come to harm. So that's hard, hardwired in there. So if they try and harm us in any ways, then they'll actually be uh, deconstruct. You know, their brains, their positron brains will just pull out. They also have to try and they have to obey us unless it conflicts with that first law. And then the third law is that they have to simply preserve their own existence as long as that doesn't conflict with the first or the second laws. So it's supposed to be a fail-safe device. But what I argue in my book is that uh, the robots find ways around the three laws. And right, what they, that's what I'm thinking. They find ways, and what they do uh, in, uh, I talk about this, but two of the human, one humaniform robot uh, and then one humanoid robot they actually find a way to create something called the zeroth law, which is a zero law, where they're viewing uh, human humankind in terms of abstract humankind as opposed to individual humans. And by mm -hmm. doing that, this is what the worst dictators have done in history. Yes. They, they say, oh, we don't care what happens to individual human beings because it's for the good of all of humanity. That's, right. what, that's what Hitler said. You know, uh, we've yeah. got to exterminate the Jews because it's good for all humanity, you know, so the robots actually sacrifice the one for the benefit of all. Right. But when you start doing that, then you're in a very dangerous position. What the robots True. do is they think they're helping. Uh, and by the way, when they start thinking like that, they actually, I, I argue, they have actually alienated themselves because they're no longer following human agendas. So they're no, no longer working in conjunction with humans as they would just being simply artificially intelligent. What they do is they actually become alien entities. And what that means is they have, they have motives 
and agendas. They are not necessarily compatible to our own. And what those robots right. eventually do is they create, they actually through uh, genetic bioengineering and then through a clever manipulation of circumstances, they get to the point where human beings are going to be wiped out. They're going to be that group think kind of human beings. So I talk about that in the second chapter. You know, so they become alienated entities. And when they become like that, they're very similar to Lovecraft's uh, alien entities because the aliens in Lovecraft also pursue only alien agendas. And we have right. nothing to do with that. In fact, most of the time, if we get in the way, you know, we they'll just squash us away like you're taking a walk and a mosquito lands on you. It's burning. You just hit it, right? That's the way the, uh, these uh, highly intelligent beings think of us. We're like mosquitoes to them. Well, right. the ro robots get to a point where it's even more insidious because they think they're helping us, but they're actually destroying us. And then in right. Gibson's world, when I call them virtual reality idols, what those things are, they're actually, uh, they're either like holographic. Uh, I call them idols, but they're virtual reality constructions. Some of them are just VR, v VR entities. Some of them are holographic. One of them is a biomechanoid. You know, some of them are actually self-generated lower that exist in cyberspace. And all these entities eventually become self-alienated, just like the robots and Asimov due to various factors. And once they become like that, their agendas are no longer human agendas. Right. They're, they're a threat to us. So that's kind of like the thread that runs through that second book where I argue that these three, when you look at those writers, I, I remember one scholar wrote to me, he said, you know, I never thought that these three writers were very compatible in terms of their themes or their mm -hmm. issues and stuff. But he said that after reading your book, I see that they're very similar in terms of right. their, their views of humankind, the destiny of humankind, and the destiny of uh, the planet in general. And that's the truth, you know. I mean, a lot yeah. of people think when they read Asimov, they think, oh, he's real sunny, everything's wonderful, we got robots, we're exploring the cosmos. It's yeah. not like that at all. It's dark. It's just as dark as Lovecraft. And Gibson, Gibson, that guy's as dark as Lovecraft, too, you know. So that's one thread that kind of links all those writers in, in there. And I'm right, Because you always think of, we always... A lot of the stories are robots. We have dominion over them, and they help. They ease are they're convenient for us, right? But there's always that tipping point where they're convenience because maybe they're superior in strength and intelligence. They weaken us. The reason right. why I did that, like he views it. It, humans were kind of cowering in this cage of steel. They were living underground on the earth and the robots were on the surface doing like farming and all that kind of stuff. And humans were living in caves of steel, it was called, where all their wants were taken care of in these vast cities. And then mm -hmm. what happened, some of the humans decided to leave the plant and they went out into space. And these people actually evolved over time and where they didn't view themselves as human. They viewed themselves as spacers. And they colonized about 50 worlds and they were doing real good. They took the robots with them and stuff. Robots were banned on Earth in the Earth city. They could only be on the surface of the Earth. But the funny thing is once they got out, then they stopped expanding. Space stopped expanding. And one of the spacers was trying to figure out what's going on. Why aren't we colonizing the galaxy? And he attributed to a couple of things. One, the spacers live a long period of time. They live like four or five times the lifespans of human beings. And mm -hmm. what that does is that makes them very complacent. They've been living so long, they want to continue living. And then secondly, because they live so long, they have a chance to do things that a short-lived human being can't do. Like, for instance, like a scientist, 
he can only go so far, but then he dies, right? So other exactly. scientists have to come along and pick up where he left off. And that's slowly how we progress, how technology develops. But if you live like four or 5,000 years, you, don't, you, you have the luxury of actually developing your own thing. So they become very selfish. They don't cooperate with other humans. They kind of guard their own secrets, and then they take a long time producing what they're doing. That weakens them because you don't have uh, interchange of ideas. And then secondly, the robots saw to every one of their wants, made them real comfortable, made it real easy for them, and they got complacent living off their robots. Right, which is, if I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with that, the movie The Blade Runner. Yes, where I love they, that. You know, they, they, they limited the first one, you know, where they limit the robots to a certain lifespan. Yeah, a uh, fail-safe device. Uh, right, and years, that's where the whole problem is because these robots don't want to die or don't want to be terminated after X yeah. amount of years. Well, they don't, but the thing is, this guy argued that because of the dependence on robots and because we we're so complacent, so scientists won't work together, they kind of hoard their own discoveries. Uh, civilization wasn't advancing, it was stagnating, and that was as far as they were going to go. And so what he did, he was one of the spacers, but he, he, he uh, advocated for laying the humans back on the earth to get out into the cosmos. See, the spacers were holding, holding a stranglehold on humans. They didn't want them out there exploring the cosmos, but eventually that was lifted, and then humans started pushing beyond the spacers. And then one of his later things, the spacers are completely forgotten. Robots are completely forgotten, and humans are colonizing the universe, you know, but the reason why they can do that is because they, they're short-lived, so they work together with other people. They don't have robots making it easy for them, so they have to do their own right. work. Right, they're self-reliant, in other words. Yeah, and then they've got the willpower and the strength and the determination and discipline to actually keep going, keep moving humans forward. So it's it's fascinating. It's almost like a cautionary tale. <laughs> don't depend they're, on robots. They're, they're, all, they're all cautionary tales, you know, but the robots in the final future of Asimuth, they're completely forgotten. Nobody even knows where a robot is. But those right. robots, those two that I talked about before, they're long living. They're the ones that kept working on the group think galaxy idea behind the scenes. You know, so it... Because I actually, think that there's a difference between using robotics as in when humans um like i say i don't um in the movie uh i think it was was it one or two of alien oh yeah one of the characters ripley she gets inside like a robotic you know it's basically like a to lift up weights stuff that you couldn't do by yourself yeah but it has, has absolutely fight. no like no computer it's basically it's driven by you know buttons yeah it's like an exoskeleton an exoskeleton, which is yeah, great. Giant, you don't have to worry she, about. She had to get in it because she had to fight the alien. She's just a little yes. human. But that human kind of by robotics, I think, are great. But I understand now as far as the other, which is like, even though you said that's not truly artificial intelligence, it's, well, so far what we've got is attempts at artificial intelligence. Yeah, you know where, um, where we're going to get, you know where it's going to come from? It's going to be like an azimuth when they, uh, artificial intelligent things finally become alienated. Aunties. It's all due to accident or chance. It'll be a trick in the programming or something yes. like that. You know, it's a chance. I think the artificial intelligence will develop. But I don't think it's something we can program. I studied uh, robotics and artificial intelligence, and they approach it basically from two angles. One, the top-down approach. And what the All top right. what the top-down approach is, you just put a bunch of put a bunch of junk into its brain. And then mm -hmm. you keep hoping that all that junk will science coalesce until it actually becomes intelligent. It just doesn't work. You know, like those robots, they'll do that. And what they do is they'll operate fine, but then eventually they get themselves stuck in a corner or something. 
they can't get out because they're not intelligent right. enough to do it. The other approach is a bottom-up approach where you don't program anything until you just kind of turn them loose. You see, just learn from experience. That doesn't right. work either. They, they don't have the capability. Am I right? They don't yeah, have right. the capability. They, can't, they end up in the corner. They don't know what they're doing. You know, so I think that when we have artificial intelligence, when we really have it, I think it's going to be due to chance. It's going to develop according to chance. And then I think they'll still be working with us like as most <laughs> robots, but I think they'll eventually evolve to a point where they become alien entities. And when that happens, then all those terrifying science fiction stories about robots overcoming humans and enslaving us, you know, like the Matrix nonsense and, uh, you know, all those kind of things, those things could frighteningly become true if they become alien entities. Yeah, by the time we figure out we're going to get the short end of the stick, it's too late. But it doesn't matter. Lovecraft says, like, I think about 16,000 uh, CE or so, humans are going to be long gone from the planet. We're going to be replaced by a more robust species, a race of beetles, telepathic beetles, giant beetles. And so we're gone. That's way before the big crunch happens. But eventually we're going to have either the sun's going to burn out, according to Lovecraft. It's going to burn out. If it burns out, it burns up our atmosphere and we're fried, right? The entire planet. Right. So if we're not killed by those beetles or if the uh, old ones don't come back and break through the trans-dimensional gates and destroy us there, the uh, great old ones apocalypse, or if any of the other apocalypse don't happen, like the zombie apocalypse or asteroids or whatever. So, know, something or somebody's going to get us. Or a pandemic, like Gibson says, is going to be a big pandemic. And it seems with this COVID stuff that Gibson's probably on track there. But if all that happens and we manage to escape that, and we managed to have our robots helping us out, it really doesn't make any difference because eventually we're dead anyhow, according to Lovecraft, just right. because the universe is going to be destroyed. So, you know, that, that's a way. Well, do you think, let me ask you, do you think the, the, the there's a chance when I say survival is if we were off planet by then, if, uh, in other words, we've conquered space travel? That, where, would, that might help, yes. That would help us from some of the things like the sun burning up. If we were on a planet Mars, Mars is farther away from the sun than we are. So mm -hmm. if we could colonize Mars, that would buy us a little time. But what we really have to do, and this is something Lovecraft didn't believe we could do, we have to free ourselves from the intolerable bondage of space and time. In other words, we have to get out of our own space-time continuum. And our whole universe here as much of it as we know, we know from the solar system, but we don't really know past the solar system whether the space-time continuum continues. But in order for it to guarantee for sure that we're going to be escape extinction like that, we have to uh, transcend space and time. And this is something that uh, that physicist I was talking about. And in the final chapters of each of, in the final chapter of each three of my sections of that second book, I talk about the Type Four civilization and you know things that we might want to do. But those writers, unfortunately, didn't believe it was possible for us to do it. You know, I'm keeping my fingers crossed and being optimistic about there right. are people there working. A lot of people aren't working. Look what we're doing on Earth today, for God's sake. Are we looking yes. out at the provider? No. You know what we're doing? We're looking at race wars, baiting wow. races against each other, baiting genders against each other. That's what we're doing on this stupid planet. Terrorism. Yes, well, we've got bigger on. problems than that. Even though we've got, what is it? Elon Musk and what was and Jeff Bezos giving people uh, tours into outer space. Yeah, well, uh, Elon Musk actually represents a good chance. He's trying. He's actually working toward colonizing Mars, and he's so he's got some really good ideas. But basically, we don't have a space program like we used to do in the old days. No, so, we don't. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to ask you what you think, John. Why do you think we've never gone back to the moon? 
I, you know, it kind of like people lost interest in it for something. I don't know where it is, but nowadays people really aren't interested in that stuff anymore. And I, I don't know. I, to me, I was like, I mean, I, I remember the, you know, we went to the moon and it was it. It was okay. We went there. All right. Pick up your, yeah, let's back, go. Well, back when that happened, I thought there was going to be the first step. You know, one small step for mankind, that yeah. nonsense, right? But I was hoping that we would consider, like, colonize. Now, they sent some probes out to Mars and stuff like that, which is great and everything. But it looks like they just kind of knocked the stuffing out of people's ideas to escape the planet and to colonize other planets. And I really don't know why that is, but we're so human-centric. We're so focused on our human concerns right now. And it's very hard. It's actually... What's happening in the world right now is actually detrimental to humankind in general, I think. Well, of course, because I think it pulls us away from, how can I say, the challenge of, like what you said, um, can we do what what interdimensional travel as a way to go around, you well, know. We need people working on it. And where oh, they of doing? course. Of and where course. Are they doing? You know what I think it is? I was trying to think about that. You know, a lot of these people have lost sight of believing in something outside of themselves, which is bad. Yes. Some people say that the reason why our civilization might be in trouble is because people don't believe in God anymore. It might not be that specifically, but you got to believe in something sure. larger than yourself. You have to work for that. And if you hook into something like that, then you've got certain good qualities. You've got morality. You've got mm -hmm. decency. You've got sure. nice. You've got happiness. But a lot of these people today a lot of the kind of more Marxist-oriented people, they don't believe in anything except no, big government. Don't. And what big yes. government seems to be is just like forcing people to follow or fall into line. And they don't want, they don't want, how can I say, original thinkers. They don't want, they want people just mindlessly falling and they want people they can control and they want yes. to be at the top. But when they get to the top, they're not bettering humankind. They're just bettering themselves. You know, right. being rich, making money, that's not going to be and pitting humans against humans and he's this incessant preoccupation with race and stuff. It's well, not if you're trying to control the multitudes, though, that usually works really well. That's, I think, the reason why they're going so hard at it is because they're uh, the end result is not what you're saying, as in, um, okay, yeah, I understand society has rules. So that's the lubricant that makes society work so that we all get together and you know, and kind of like, you know, everything works. But always there there wasn't that, the aim wasn't totally control everybody all the time about everything. And then, oh. of course, you had all your different people that came forward, original thinkers in different fields, whatever it was. And you let them flourish. And, you know, hopefully um, either the government or a university would give them money to Go for it. Because nowadays, like you said, Elon Musk, he's a what, multi-billionaire. Before, you had these people who were very were geniuses, and they wouldn't have had the money to fund. Um, no, the, go the government should have been funding them. But for right. some reason, the government d doesn't, uh, doesn't actually foster or nurture original thinking or genius at all. And it's no, too bad. No. And, and then, you know, they do, they actively try and suppress it. If it goes, if there's yes. an original thinker yeah. and they don't agree with, they actually try to suppress it. Yes. yes. That's not the way for humankind to advance, but I don't know how we can reverse a trend. You know, I well, really the thing don't. is this is, is that once upon a time, it was like, you know, when people do brainstorms, brainstorming, that they yes. say, just throw ideas out there as though, that doesn't matter if they sound wild, but I think a lot of times they stop that. 
you know, you're going to have people that come up with ideas of inventions or whatever, and some of them are not going to fly. They're going to, but amongst all those tries, you're going to come up with these ideas, there's got these breakthrough ideas. There's got to be a that, free marketplace of ideas. Yes, that even go against the um, the there's, norm. What's believed? Yeah, they shouldn't. But the thing that bothers me, you know, I won't mind it so much. But the people there are fostering these things, they don't seem to believe in anything. They no, don't they seem don't. to believe in anything. They this don't. is why I like talking to somebody like you. I've been on a lot of shows. Uh, mm -hmm. that more people are favoring like magical thinking or magical studies and stuff. I like these kind of things because uh, at least you believe in something outside of yourself and yes. it ennobles you if you've got something you believe outside. And I think that for us to advance to a type four civilization, we have to have a combination of science. Science is looking a lot like magic these days, but uh, it is, it is. Yeah. But science, we have to have, it has to kind of, co it has to, conjoin with what we used to term magical thinking and, and the creativity in that regard. And they have to kind of fuse together in order for it to actually move forward creatively. And unfortunately, there aren't too many people there involved no. in trying to do that right now. No. And, and, and how can I say, I, I believe in science as far as facts and being able to produce a model where you can replicate whatever your, whatever it is that you're trying to, your methodology, whatever. But let's face it, there has to be some, once upon a time, you talked about flying and that was sounded like magical thinking. In other words, if you never made the jump from that magical thinking into science, it would never have gone. You talk to somebody about a man flying, like as in an airplane, and it was, that was magic. That was like, yes, it was. you could have been yes, burned at the stake for your troubles. Yes. Um, they have their way of burning people at the stake now, although it's called canceling rather than just... Oh, them. heck yeah. That's it. You will be like flushed down the toilet. Why? Forget why why, why yes. do you have to be canceled? I don't understand. I, know, don't, I don't understand. I don't either. understand why it's like, hey, that's your idea. If it's crazy, whatever. <laughs> there you it go. Should, it should thing. Everything should be up for discussion, at least. You're thinking about, you know, there should be freedom to do that. And our yes. freedoms in that regard are being kind of stifled a little bit. And I don't know, you know, the more I look at Lovecraft and these other people, their kind of dark, dys dystopian kind of view of the future, mm -hmm. it seems more and more like that might be it. But I'm an optimistic kind of person. I don't yes, think I am, too, you about write, humans. You write books yourself and stuff. So yes. the thing is, you, a person doesn't write a book unless you're optimistic. Yeah. I don't, I don't think anybody sits down and say, I'm going to write the most depressing thing in the world and just get everybody down because it's true. And I don't think people write for that reason. I think they write because they're optimists and they like yes. to explore certain ideas and images that are uplifting to them. And if they have the skill where they can kind of convey that onto the printed page, then that's great. You know, but I don't think anybody but an optimist writes books. So I'm an optimist, but I'm an I, optimist. I have fears about the direction that things are going. I'd like sure. to see it reversed. I'd like to see more than just Elon Musk. Bless Elon Musk's heart. You know, he'll say what he wants to say, but he uh, he seems to be a lone voice a lot of times. Well, and then, this is, and, and you're, you, you made a good point. Why is he doing it? And why isn't our government or NASA or whatever they, whoever doing, going out there and doing this work? Well, look what our government's doing now. You know, they're, no, focusing, on, they're focusing on things that, 
probably aren't true. You know, they're not true. They're talking about them like they're true, but they're not true. A lot of the things they're focusing on might have been true in the 1920s, but they're not true anymore. No, they're not. They're you not. Know, I think after all the thing, diversity and everything else we've gone through, I don't think this country's bad the way they're talking about. And it no. doesn't help to try and convince people to no, deny not. the evidence of their own senses. Right. And they're making, in, in other words, I think it's detracting. It's like you're, this, this, this problem is not, that's not reality. It's not. In, in, in the, you know, in, in the majority, it's not. Uh, and it's almost like, you know, when people telescope on this little thing and they want to make that situation everything. And yes. it's like, that's not the reality people of the majority. Are, people are multidimensional. A lot of the scholars at some universities want to focus just on Lovecraft being a racist. And that's all they can see. Lovecraft's oh. a racist. Lovecraft's a white supremacist. Lovecraft, that was one aspect of Lovecraft. But those other aspects I talked about, the nature of reality, you know, the problem of human perception, the cosmos, what it means to be human. These are the things that Lovecraft was interested in more than he was in racism. He's a multifaceted human being. Yeah, he was. You know, he was. You don't, you don't just focus on one thing and say no. that because of that, we that, that's the whole person. Else. We have to ignore everything else. Well, no, we don't have to ignore that. Well, and I tell people because everybody, everybody, of course, present time thinks it's never been as bad as this. And I go, look, I grew up, I was born and raised in Miami. I was a little kid when this happened, but I said, when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened, I later on, you know, as an adult, I worked with people that are a little bit older than me that were, and they, they, they told me, hey, my parents shipped me off to family in another state because people at that time thought that they were going to get blown out of the water. I mean, to them, this was as major a catastrophe as anything. If you were living, especially in South I remember, Florida, I with remember, a, even was, a missile crisis. I was and back then, it was like apocalyptic, to use that word. Yeah. But people think, forget all about that, because that was so long ago, and everybody's now thinking, this is the worst it's ever been. It's crazy. And it's like, depends on what moment in time you're you're experiencing. Because let's say, I'm using that as an example. Back then, people were really thinking that they were going to have missiles dropped on them to the point that they were getting moving out or sending their children fallout shelters, which wouldn't help. Anything. Yes. If you, get, if you get a fallout yes. shelter, you just undergrad. That's not going to help anything. Uh, Let me tell you something. I, I used to live in this place where every, and this was in the mid sixties where at 12 PM, you would hear the sirens go on. They would do like a practice siren. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> after a while you get so used to it. You know, and, and there was an auditorium close by where underneath there was supposed to be like a bomb shelter um, under that auditorium. But, uh, yeah, that was the reality back then. And you know what? Here we are. What? Well, 16 I'm, years I'm, later. Yeah, I'm optimistic. I'm hoping things will turn around a little bit. But uh, there's some very powerful forces trying oh. to de destroy humankind, to limit humankind. And I don't know the way that we need more people kind of standing up. And being believing in something outside of themselves, and then trying to move humanity forward. And I don't, I don't see too many people doing it anymore. And it's kind of a little sad, but I'm optimistic. I'm going to just keep doing what I was put on the earth sure. to do. And, you know, what can I do? You know, what can I do? Let me ask you something, John. Since we're talking about robotics, I'm going to ask you this question because this thoughts cross my mind quite frequently. Do you think that this whole, I don't want to say in the last two years, what's been going on? Do you think? And this is a, a rabbit hole. 
that this in the end is going to be the way to introduce more robotics into our society? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I think we're moving away from science. We're really? Away from, I, I believe that we're moving away from science. Science has become very politically charged nowadays, and people are making decisions based on politics rather than real science. So I don't think, I think like with the space travel, I don't think we're going to get to the point where we develop artificial intelligence. Asimov never dreamed of some of the things that are happening right now, but he believed that what would be happening in the year 2000 is we mm -hmm. first of all get real sensible. We'd use uh, actual uh, fuels that we could do to replace fossil fuels, and it wouldn't be wind. I'll tell you that. No, it wouldn't be it's sun. not. It would it be nu nuclear power. Nuclear right, power. Right. Yes. Nuclear. Nuclear power is very clean. People don't realize it's very that. clean, and it can uh -huh. be it can be controlled and managed. That I think is a key to energy in the future. But then we've got to start working on uh, developing robots, developing spaceships, developing. Uh, thinking along the lines we were when we went to the moon, but people aren't thinking about those things anymore. Well, you know why I asked that? Because I'm thinking, you know, let's say now where we're having with all this shortage of manpower, and I'm thinking this is the perfect intro to bring in robots to do the work. So you don't have to worry anymore that you're not going to have manpower to do the work. Yeah, no. But who's going to develop the robots? The science, oh, that's a whole different question. Science, science doesn't seem to be interested in doing that sort of thing. They were, science seemed breathlessly, breath, breathlessly exciting back in the 60s and stuff. Mm -hmm. But now I don't see the scientists interested in doing that anymore. You know, So I don't know what's going to happen. What do you think it is? Do you think it's lack of funding? Do you think it's just that they're not pushing forward the, the, the really – the people out there with the ideas to let's 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 leap from what we know to let's try that. Well, there people aren't being encouraged to do that. People aren't uh -huh. being encouraged to be original thinkers or to make leaps like that, you know. So, and if then they're afraid that they're going to be canceled or be criticized for. Or what is what is it with these uh, the the academics? You know, lose their tenure and stuff like that. And yeah. Yeah, that was back in my day. That wasn't, you know, you could, uh, academics could pretty much say and write whatever they want to. Yeah, that was and, the whole thing. And if you didn't like them, refute them. Yeah, get stronger arguments, get stronger yes. ideas. But they don't do that anymore. They're, they they go right to the chase. You, you believe as I believe, you accept what I say, or, you know, you're... You debate. You're, you're bad. I remember taking classes in debate. Yeah. They, you know, this was one of the things where... You argue something that is in people have the wrong idea when they, you use the word argument as in argue like. I, yeah, but now uh, is, I don't know. You know, I don't know. I'm going to just do the best I can. People like Elon Musk could do. We're all doing the best we can. And who can say what's going to happen in the future? I'm just going to be optimistic about because I think that there's a genuine element in a human person, a human spirit, the will, mm -hmm. whatever you want to call. I think that might ultimately be. Uh, you know, the, the key toward moving in that direction, uh, blending science and religion, but people have got to believe in things besides themselves. I'm not saying they have to go to church and believe in God, but they got to believe in something that's greater right. than them and some purpose that's greater than them, something that sure. gives their life meaning and happiness. And I don't see a lot of the people being too happy or finding any meaning. And it's, well, too it, it's almost like if you don't get recognition for it, you don't do it. I'm thinking to myself, if you're really passionate about something and they told you, you're never going to get recognition from this, would you still keep doing it? And if you say yes, then you're passionate about it. And I don't think there's that many people. Like in other words, if I don't get, get recognition, then I'm not going to do it. It's like, you know, the, when you're really crazy about something, 
you're going to do it because like you said, it gives you joy. That's right. And it's like, okay, if I get recognition, fine. If I don't, I don't care. I'm still going to do this well, because this is what makes me happy. I'm going to be optimistic. I'm just going to continue being optimistic. I'm going to keep writing my books and exploring yes. the thing. Cause that's what I think I was put on the earth to do. I do it very well, you know, and stuff. So uh, I'm going to just keep doing that. I'm going to hope for the best. I'm going to hope for the best. Yes. Yes. Do you want to talk about any paranormal stuff? Since it's yes, now, now that you reminded me, you said you had paranormal experiences. What yeah, happened? I, I had a, a couple odd ones, just a few of them, you know, but but odd ones. One of them was when I was in middle school. We used to go up to this place called Lake Thirteen in Clare, Michigan. It was a cabin, basically. It was a cabin by the by a nice lake, and my brother and me went out there with our parents, and it was great for kids. It was just great for because we like to explore woods gravel pits we'd have bow and arrows that we take out with we'd uh, get in a rowboat and roll, roll around the lake and stuff my brother always captured frogs and turtles and stuff and he you know he'd let them go but we had a lot of fun doing that but this cabin was uh really excellent you know it was down a dirt road there weren't a lot of kites uh, out there so it was a great place to just be a boy and to have fun but uh at night time uh there was it was a small cabin so there were two bedrooms a main room and the kitchen was connected to the main room and there was no place for my mom to sleep. Like my grandparents were alive. So they, they had one bedroom and then my brother slept in a bed across from them. And then the other bedroom had my dad and then me in it. And then my mom would sleep on the couch. Now the main room was this big dark room and uh, my mom would be sleeping on the couch. And it was really strange because late at night it get fearfully dark out there because there were no uh, street lamps or anything like that because we were out in the country. So it would get very right. dark. So there would sometimes be a fire in the fireplace around the time when these things happened. The fire was dying down. So it was very dark out there in the room. They had some kind of heater off to one side. They put this like orange glow up at the top and stuff. But that didn't really break the darkness or anything. But for some reason... And it only happened to me. I'd wake up like about midnight. I'd go to bed and I'd usually wake up every night around midnight or a little bit after. And I always knew what was going to happen. What I'd do is my bed was actually, the head of the bed was away from the door. But I'd go to the foot of the bed and I'd look out into this dark room. And it was just lit kind of intermittently with this kind of fire, fireplace flickering. And my mom, I could see her. She'd wear like this white robe. She'd be sleeping on the couch there, covered up sleeping on the couch. And I would look over there. And suddenly, an image of my mom would come out of her body. It would come out of her body. Okay. And I, I could see through it. Like, it had kind of, a, kind of a glowing outline to it. So it outlined her shape. And it looked just like my mom in real life, except I could see through it. So I could see her features, her form and stuff. But I could also see the room behind it. So it had kind of smoky kind of look about Yeah. And, this, and there was a rocking chair, like, right next to where she was, right in front of the fireplace. And it would go sit in a rocking chair, this, this thing. And it would sit there and rock, you know, like this. And then suddenly it would notice I was watching it. And so then it would get up from the rocking chair and it would walk toward me across the room. And I'd feel like shivers down my spine. I could still see my mom's body in the bed, but this thing was walking. And it would put its arms out like this. And it'd be kind of beckoning toward me, inviting me to come out there. And then it would walk to about the middle of the room and it would disappear. And they would be back wow. in the rocking. It would be back in the rocking chair. It would do the same thing over and over again, as long as I wanted to watch it. And it used to really give me the creeps. One time, I couldn't resist it. I had to get up. Now I got out of bed. And I was absolutely terrified. I could feel all my hair standing up and back. And I was trembling, but I had to get out there 
and see what this thing was. So I actually walked out to meet it when I was walking toward it. And the closer I got to it, it I was getting closer and the hands were out. And it had the weirdest expression on its face. It was on my mom's face, but it had kind of an evil look in the face. I've never seen okay. it look like that on my mother's face before. And what was weird, when I walked toward it, I'd almost be at the point where I could touch it and it would disappear. I'd be back in okay. the rocking chair. And then I just kept going. I kept walking toward the rocking chair. I reached my hand out. I was sitting in the rocking chair. And right when I reached my hand out to touch the rocking chair, it was gone and the rocking chair had stopped. And I always wondered what that was. I was saying, well, I must be imagining this. And so I said, this is the way kind of reasoning I did when I was a little kid. I said, if I change place with my brother, because my brother's bedroom was facing at a different angle until he could see the rocking chair, but it was facing like off to the left a little bit. I said, if this is my imagination, you know, uh, if I'm some, if, if there's something really there, then it should walk toward me wherever I'm at. If it's just, some, if it's, or I, I can't remember what my reasoning was, but I, I somehow thought that if it, it actually continued walking in that direction toward my bedroom, they would be real because it wasn't okay. coming toward me. But if it came toward me in my new sleeping in the new bed, then it was all in my head. It was just coming directly okay. toward me. That was my reasoning. I don't know if that's logical reasoning or not, but yeah. that was my reasoning. So I changed beds with my brother. My brother, by the way, slept like a log, never woke up. I would always wake up every night. I It was like it was a show for me personally to see. Uh-huh. So I was in the bed. I woke up at the usual time and it was out there rocking. And it was really weird because it got up and started walking toward the center of the room. And what it did is it kept walking past my line of vision. And I could see it from the side. And so I assumed that because of that, that it was actually some kind of empirically existing thing, whatever, okay. whether it was an astral body or whatever. I never did find out what that thing was. And I never told my mom anything about it because I was afraid it would scare her that she would think it's a did that Did you ever see it outside of the cabin or was I it only at the cabin? It was only in that rocking chair. It was only in the cabin. And that so, I, so we sold it a long time ago. I couldn't resist. I actually took the rocking chair home. It's in my basement of, my, of this house right now. But I've never gone downstairs to see if there's any phenomenon. But it's been like, I mean, good heavens, you know, my daughter's 24 right now. And so that was like back in the 1960s. So that's okay. certainly enough years to knock any kind of the tomfoolery out of the rocking chair. You'd be so, surprised, though. I don't know. But that was my <laughs> my experience there. And then I had another experience one time. And I wrote about this one in that essay, the Real and Fictional Vampires. I was mm-hmm. sleeping one time. And I woke up, and there were these dark figures by the side of my bed for some reason. And they were just kind of huddled all together. And I was half asleep. I didn't really know what to do. I wasn't really scared of them, but I didn't like the fact. I didn't want to roll over and go to sleep with these dark figures next to me. So I put my hand up and I drew a pentagram, kind of an earth okay. pentagram. I could, uh-huh. When I did magic, I could actually visualize so well that I could like trace pentagrams or hexagrams or whatever right. in the air. I could actually see them. You know, they'd be okay. So I tra- traced up a pentagram and it was... Uh, Right, bright yellow in color. So I had this pentagram. I traced it up there. I was kind of half asleep. I was just laying there. And I traced the pentagram. And then I pushed it like this. And the pentagram went out and it dispersed all the black figures. And then for some reason, I felt comfortable enough. So I just went to sleep again. I don't know. Were what they, were they, was it the outline? Were they hooded? Or you couldn't tell? I could, they were, I, they were different. They were darker than the dark room. So they were, okay. they, I could see they were roughly humanoid in shape, but that's all mm-hmm. I could make. I couldn't see any features or anything like that, but I felt vaguely menaced by them because they were all kind of clustered toward the bed. Do you remember what you were working on at that time? No, I don't. 
this was before I'd published my first book. So this had to have been like in, oh no, actually it was after I published it because that article was published after I published my first book. This was around 2016, possibly. So this was when you were working after you published the one about the vampires. Yeah. Well, no, I wrote the vampire essay. And then I remember that incident and I talked about real vampires. And I put that in the book along with some of the other things I talked about. It's a personal experience. And that, and so you, once you did that, that was the end of that. No more, no more I never, dark figures. I never saw it again. I, I assume those things were like some kind of psychic vampire or something. I think paranormal things are like forms of energy, very subtle forms of energy. And I think mm -hmm. what happens is the human mind, they interacts with them. And that they don't really take form unless the mind gives them a form to take. A lot of times uh, people don't really know what they're seeing, but then they grab at something they've heard about. Like they'll see something and it probably doesn't look like that, but the human mind has to give it an image because we have to humanize things. We're human centered. Sure. We have to, you know, and so they'll say, ah, well, and then they'll suddenly see it as a dog with glowing eyes or they'll see it like maybe they've read about a haunted house and they had a right. mortuary down there and they looked at pictures of a guy that ran the mortuary. And so the mind will take those pictures. Yeah. And, and just it, give it, it'll give yeah, it. We want to, we will. That, let me That's, ask you that essay about vampires. When you were saying real, what, what, what was that about? Did you well, do what? It was a like study. you said, psychic vampires or yeah, vampires well, in a, the traditional sense. About, yeah. Well, I talked first about the fictional vampires and about mm -hmm. how the first argument in the first part of the essay, it was only like a 10 page essay, but uh, the first part I argued the vampires, even in Dracula and stuff like that, they're very intangible. You know, they're not, they're not fully by, they're very intangible. And then after I kind of went through some literary works that kind of picture the vampire in that way, and then I shift focus to real vampires. And I was reading Constantinos. Do you know who the author Constantinos? He wrote like uh, Nocturnal Witchcraft and Nocturnicon mm -hmm. and books like that. And he also wrote a book about vampires. The, the Vampires, the Occult Truth, I think it was called. did one about werewolves too. But he was writing about psychic vampires. And so I was reading that and I read, I've studied vampires anyhow. And they have the concept of the psychic vampire, where it's just some form of energy and it's left behind and it's trying to survive. And the way that it survives, it siphons off psychic energy. It's not okay. blood, but it's psychic energy from sleeping people and stuff like that. And so I figured that these things were that I saw, and I worked that in toward the end. These things that I saw were like okay. some form of psychic vampire. I don't know. You know, I don't know what right. they were. But and I, they were all dark and stuff, but I drove them away. But I, of course, I don't think I drove them away because they bleed that pentagrams can drive them away any more than I believe that the cross and a priest throwing holy water is going to drive away a demon because he believes. And I believe that the reason why he drive away because the person that's doing it actually believes it's going to do it. I was going to say the one that, that needs to believe it is you that's or the right. part, the originator. Yeah. So it's very possible those psychic vampires came as a result of some of the studies that I've been making. I don't mm -hmm. know. I don't know why I would be visited by psychic vampires anything but i just handled it i was under no illusion at the time that i was actually in the presence of real entities that looked like that i was in the, in the presence of things that my mind had created based on some subtle form of energy that i really find it very hard to analyze what exactly it is well you know they've discovered all these deviant burials and these very older cemeteries where people were buried a certain way because basically pinning them to the earth because at that time, people thought of the traditional vampire that would, you know, come back from the right. dead and and go and use, you know, feed from humans. So that belief goes back a very, very long time. 
Yeah, a steak. Okay. And, you know, a steak. And when you think about yes. driving a steak through the heart. I've heard stones in the mouth, a sickle. They would even put, put yeah, sickles on them. Yeah, the ways to keep it from rising up. But I don't know if that's the best way to approach those kind of things. Well, now, no, no, but that belief, that fear, how's that? Yeah, that's, yeah, but I believe that the mind is so powerful that it can create these kind of things. I've never actually had any experience. I went into a haunted house one time. A friend of mine does ghost hunting one time. Mm -hmm. I, I went along with him, and he has all these. When he goes here, he's real susceptible to influences. I think he just kind of half deludes himself into seeing things or feeling something cold. But for some reason, when I go into a place like that, it's the places are suddenly stone cold there's nothing there there's nothing there i mean i yeah. and he one person said well it's because you're real strong world well i am strong-willed admittedly so you know yes. but uh i don't know you know i think it's because i i don't really need the pentagrams i just got a real strong mind and they can't they can't really obsess me but i don't know i haven't i i haven't really empirically studied these things so i don't know what they are what, well, what but, but believe it or not that those are the best traits for somebody that's going to do research or whatever into the paranormal or supernatural, that is the best personality to have. Because if you prime yourself, of course you're gonna hear and see things, God knows. Yeah, you can't that you're gonna attribute to you can't a paranormal entity. You can't, you can't get hurt or obsessed, certainly if you've got a strong yeah. mind, because they can't get into you and stuff. But you know, I used to practice magic when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And I used to do rituals, and I would get results for those rituals. Sure. I remember we called it Bartzabel, the spirit of Bartzabel, associated with Mars. And he came up. We had a ceremony out there in the cemetery. He came up. He looked just like you'd expect the spirit of Mars to look like. But when I was actually conjuring it up, there, in the back of my mind, there was this little nagging voice that said, you know, he looks just like he's supposed to be. But is that really the spirit of Bartzabel? Is this just something I conjured out of my mind? And well, in other words, what you're saying is, he manifested the way you thought he would. Exactly. Because like. okay. I read where we had the ritual set up the way we're supposed to. We had the pentacles, the kind of mm -hmm. symbols for Bart's and Bell. We had red drape for Mars. We had iron. We were using iron stuff. And we were using all the accoutrements necessary. They're associated with that. I saw pictures of Bart's and Bell and stuff. And, if, and that's why I think, he, I think I just I couldn't believe that he was real. And when I started thinking that, it went away immediately. You know, because it seemed to me like I had your analytical piece. mind jumped in there and yeah, but <laughs> drove if it away. Was, if it really empirically exists, so what would it matter? What I was thinking about. Now, let me ask you something. Like in all magical traditions, regardless of who or how, what invocation you do to whom or how, really, isn't it always driven by intent or how strong your intent is as far as results are concerned? Yeah, as you said, it worked. They all the rituals that I did worked. I even did a series of rituals based on Lovecraftian entities in my younger years, and they mm -hmm. would kind of co come looking. I get pulled into these experiences, and they would kind of be like a Lovecraftian atmosphere. But then over time, I realized, you know, well, I'm in the same situation. I can't verify where these things empirically exist or not. Where there's something outside myself or something that I create, and so then I kind of just stopped practicing magic after a while because it seems to me that I didn't have any tools using magic to actually confirm whether or not there was really something there, something outside myself in terms of those kind of entities. So I don't know. You know, I don't know. Well, you said, were you, how can I tell you, whatever, did you, did you get something to manifest as in results? I'm not talking about the actual ceremony. Yeah, I'm saying I got, afterwards. I saw, oh, you mean... Well, uh, after the ritual is over, you do the, like the closing, you do the ban, mm -hmm. you, ban you banish everything, you close it all down, and right. then you restore it all to its original atmosphere. I never had any side effects after that. 
I mean, nothing. but did you, once you did whatever you asked for, did you ever get results? You know what I was doing? I was doing it for pure knowledge. I, I never did it to do it. Okay. I did just because I want to get experience of what, like when I evoke Cthulhu, for instance, or mm-hmm. Yogg-Sothoth or something. I did a ritual for Yogg-Sothoth up at a beautiful place, right right by a nice hill, right by a beach on Lake Michigan. So I, I did mm-hmm. a lot of rituals up at that place, but I I was doing it basically see what the heck is Yogg-Sothoth, you know, let's, okay. conjure him, let's conjure him up, let's evoke him or invoke him, whatever he prefers, invoking an evocation. There's not that much difference between the two. They say invoking is bringing it inside you, evoking is manifesting, right. but there's really not that much difference between the outer and the inner when you're in a magical ritual, but uh, I yeah. would do it and then I'd have this experience, but whether this was Yogg-Sothoth or not, or just my own conceptions of Yogg-Sothoth, who, who right. knows? Who knows? But, and I guess my point is, however you want to, whatever aids you during that invocation, like you said, whether it's what you imagine it should be look like, or if that's what it helps you to whatever, to do the invocation, you know, once, like you said, you're done. Yeah, but never, you know, I could never. But you never that. say, you know what, I did that and this thing that I, I wanted to have happen, happened. It happened, but what, what, whatever it was, it didn't satisfy me. And I've never, oh, used, okay. and I've never used magic for any lower ends. You know, some people do magic. Well, I got to get a girlfriend, so I'm going to do magic. I got to eliminate yeah. an enemy. I found that in my entire life, I never needed magic to get the things that I wanted. Never. I always right. used just myself, and it all, it's been working real good all my life. You know, so yeah. I don't have to light a candle and say, I want a better job, or I want this lover, or I want this or that. Never needed magic for that kind of thing. It was purely right. for knowledge. And when I say knowledge, I say power too, but not power to dominate people. Yes, there's a difference. Say. I know, I understand exactly what you mean. Yeah. As far as, and, and unfortunately, there's a lot of people, and that's, I think, when the magic also starts how can I tell you the, it becomes darker magic. Yeah. As I, in, don't want, I don't want that. I don't want power. When, you know, you people, you hear about people getting hexing, cursing, yeah, um, uh, vengeance, you know, I mean, that's when it just goes downhill from there. If you feel uh, that strongly, like if you got an enemy and you feel that strongly about mm-hmm. and you're going to do a curse, just get yourself a gun, go over there and shoot them. <laughs> John is practical. (laughs) No, seriously, that's the best way to handle it. You know, I mean, and if you can get away with it, that's fine. You know, but uh, that kind of hate, the kind of power. But you know what? This is not good. A lot of people, even the ones that don't do the um, the ritual themselves, let's say they go to somebody to do it for them. Let's let's use the uh, curse thing. You know. Yeah, yeah. Usually they go that route because what they could do on their own they would get in trouble with the law for. So yeah, in other law. words, so Intent. they're they're like, okay, if I can't get them the way I want to, then I'm going to go and do the magical thing, even though even if I have to pay somebody else to do it for me. Well, they don't, uh, the authorities don't believe in that anymore. However, in the old days, like if you hired somebody to do that, you were mm-hmm. considered responsible for it. You know, like yeah. they, they might, the person actually might get off that actually did the actual spell, but you would be responsible for it. Like if I send, Today, they don't believe in magic, but say that I wanted to kill a friend of mine. Well, right. I wouldn't be a, a very good friend, but say, no, that, say that I wanted to kill a very 
casual acquaintance of mine. And I hired a hitman to do it, right? If it, if it comes back to me where they I've hired him, I get responsibility for that. So I go sure. to prison. A lot of times the hitman, he'll get a lighter sentence than the person that planned or the person that set it up. So right. That's true. But now they don't believe in magic. So nowadays, like if a, a person said, well, I'll kill the, your, uh, your acquaintance that you don't like so much, what they would do, they would accuse that person of committing fraud. You know, they sure it, taking it's, money it's, from it's, somebody taking money under false pretenses because they don't believe in magic. But see here, we're getting back to that one issue that we've been talking about all night long, believing in something larger than oneself, something outside sure. of yourself. And if you don't have that, your world becomes very narrow. Your imagination yeah. becomes narrow. And then ultimately your possibilities become narrow. And the more people that have narrow possibilities, the more closer we are to these terrible outcomes but you know john that 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 mindset usually is driven by people who live in fear all the time fear and just just bitterness just bitterness yeah fear bitterness i mean fear has a place it's like if it's going to save you from danger yay fear but when people live in systemic fear all the time all the time you know then that's when you you know you narrow your imagination uh, you become very self-centered because I'm afraid all the time. You're angry because, you I, like I say, show me how angry you are and I'll tell you how scared you are. Yeah, and you know what? They don't want other people to have fun. It's like, they oh, no. <laughs> some, somewhere somewhere out there, some people are having a good time. You What's know, that misery having, loves company thing? Yeah, but then they, they don't, it's not enough that they they want to get together with other people that are miserable like them, but they want to ruin it for oh, you. No. They but want that's, to that's say, no, you can't do that. You know, that's wrong. You're this yeah. or you're that. You know, that's, no, I don't, that's, I don't that's, like this. See, once upon a time, people like that wouldn't have the power to do stuff like that. If they were just unhappy, well, hey. And yeah, they could be cranky and you don't, yeah, that's a crank. But that's, that's as far as they could get. You know, they could tell you off or, or tell you, get off my lawn or, you know. Unhappy people. Once, once upon but now a that's time, changed. That's you changed. You said that several times. Once upon a time. You know, I hope that once upon a time, yeah. I, I hope people start moving toward that thing again. I, I, I'm going to be optimistic about it. You know, I'm good. Of course, that is about, the best thing. I've been talking about Lovecraft and Asmuth and Gibson. I love reading these guys. I did, do, do I have great, do, I just great delight reading these people. But when I start thinking about the darker aspects, it kind of uh, taints my optimism a little bit. So I'm just not going to do that. I'm, not, I'm just not going to do well, that right now. You know, Ron, even when you read, let's say, Lovecraft, a lot of the things, even though he invented this pantheon of the older gods or whatever, he still delineated them as being evil. You understand? And, you know, you had your hero who, well, sometimes the hero got it, you know. But in other it. words... The yeah. ones that were in collusion with him, like Charles. I know Dexter, Charles Dexter Ward was a victim. He got it. Uh, Joseph yeah. Kerwin, who actually lied himself with Yog Sotha, he got yeah. it before. He got it before Charles Dexter Ward. Everybody gets it. Everybody gets yeah. it in the end. That's why I love crap. But you know what? I just love the guy. It's just fun to read this stuff. I like the New England atmosphere and stuff. And it's part of yes. my childhood. You know, Asmuth is a little bit more positive. But then when you get down to it, he's pretty dark too. Gibson's always dark, but I just love this kind of stuff. You know, I just love yeah, reading it. I don't blame you, but you know what? Isn't it great to be interested in stuff like that? I think that well, a lot of people when now I they... write these things. This is optimistic. This book is optimistic. Yeah. It'll get you thinking about 
different time or get you thinking about like such concepts and what if space and time are actually okay, let me ask you something how long ago did asimov write those stories how many years ago oh he'd he been was... writing he'd been writing probably since the late 50s or so okay. but he, he he peaked like during the 80s it's late 70s and 80s but he was still writing in the 90s and then unfortunately he died of complications due to AIDS. He had a blood transfusion. He had, he had oh, wow. some, some kind of open heart surgery and he had uh, got tainted blood. And so he died due to complications due to AIDS. And they kept that under wraps for a long time because there was a stigma associated with AIDS. But then was, uh, he was married to somebody named Janet Jepson, who was a psychologist. She finally released the details like in the 90s, the late mm -hmm. 90s, the way he died from. But uh, he was writing. He was, he, he's probably one of the most prolific writers ever but my thing is he was giving these ideas he was he was producing these stories what 50 years ahead of its time as far as robotics and oh yeah we haven't got there yet same with gibson too gibson's got these holographic he's got one the adora her name is which means idol that's where i got the idea to call them virtual reality idols but she's holographic and she's artificially intelligent now in japan we see holographic performers now like hatsu miku a performer that's a total hologram. People can go and watch her at a concert. She's just a glowing, beautiful woman, and she sings and stuff. But Gibson predicted artificial intelligence. Hatsu Miku is not artificially intelligent yet. And the same with uh, Asimov. He predicted these robots, positronic robots, but their their predictions have not come true yet because we just the technology that we have now, it's not up there yet. Well, I want to say, now that you said Japan, I want to say, was it last year? 2019 they had a robot they call artificial intelligence basically in a as a religion as a religious leader in a church or a yeah. temple i'm sorry in japan that was like yeah they have an oxymoron there well they love their robots and their holographic things in japan and stuff i've seen facsimiles of human beings uh people can marry these things you know there are certain men that can be married yeah i know i've heard of that it's How like who's actually married to you get a certificate you pay a certain amount of money and you're being married to him and stuff like that but the only problem is is that big problem they haven't got around these things are not artificially intelligent they're programmed yeah. so they can be very clever like google's very clever right i once asked google you know I, i'm i'm pre prevailing on google now i have a little knowledge panel because i've written two books now and everything so i like to keep track of all my media and stuff like that on google but one uh -huh. time i asked I had one of those Google things where you say like, hey, Google, and then you ask it a question. I loved asking about myself because then it would tell me that who I was and stuff. I thought that was kind of cool. But I asked it one time, I said, Google, are you alive? And it had an answer that was real clever. It said, well, I think that I'm alive. And it had this kind of, I forget what it's exact words were but that's not artificially intelligent what happened is they just anticipated somebody answering the question then they programmed in yeah. a lot of response and the same thing with hatsu miku and all the hatsu miku and all the rest of them and the robots that they have now in japan they have ones that can you can they can be your lover too you can have a robot that looks yes like a facsimile human being but it's not artificially intelligent yeah that's so, it's finite as far as its response and they use I mean, that term indiscriminately by saying artificial intelligence. They're just not there yet. And you know what? You'll know. Uh, believe me, we'll know that when a robot or a hologram or a VR entity is artificial intelligence, they won't keep it secret from us. We'll know intuitively the minute they start telling us. They do say, you think that they're ever going to come up? Let's let's animal human hybrids, or do you think that the genetics they're 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 um, oh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, but we got problem yet. We got mastered the gene. The, you know, we're not there yet fully in terms of technology. Yeah, you know, right. we've got have complete mastery of, of genetic technology to the point where, like, uh, we could prolong our life. Like, it'd be great for me reaching my age, you know, that I could have a complete, all my organs in my body could be grown in, in a, they could be in a refrigerator. Right. Anytime, anytime something wears out, I just simply replace it so I could prolong my, I got cancer in my lungs, take yep. them out. In, and you know what? Those would be lungs here based on my DNA. Right. So There's no injection. My, my lungs. The trickiest thing will be the nervous system because the whole lifeblood of human beings, not the brain, not the heart, you know, but it's actually the nervous system with the electronical synapses that keep everything going together. That would right. be the most difficult thing. But if they can actually reach a genetic technology to such a point where you can actually regenerate parts of your body, keep them on ice, and then regenerate a whole uh, central nervous system. You got mm -hmm. something going. I could live to, for like two, 3,000 years. Yes, I think we'll have that before we have artificial intelligence. I think the artificial intelligence. So basically you're talking about cloning. Yeah, I'm talking about cloning. I, I guess you'd call it cloning. I don't know if I like the term cloning. Well, so when I say cloning, I mean, um, yeah, it was like, uh, what was it? Um, God, what's that magazine in the 90s that was uh that had to do with science god i can't remember what the name uh, of it is what was it called? starts with an o uh wait it'll come to me omni, in a minute. omni magazine omni i remember back in the 90s they did an article about cloning the idea was that they were saying cloning a human body a human being okay cut out take out the part of the brain that basically gives it self-awareness in other words only leave enough so that the body will function Respira respiration and basically use that body um, for argon harvest, harvesting. And I thought it was pretty horrible. I don't know if that was me just being, but it was like, well, God. William Gibson's predicted the use of peripherals, which are actually humanoid things that like, you can actually uh, transfer your... It's kind of like, remember the movie Avatar? Yes, right, right, yeah. yes. It's like that kind of thing, but it's a little bit more sophisticated than that. So I think we'll have things like that. They'll actually have humanoid bodies that we can change consciousness. That's not quite the same thing. I think that when we get master the genetics so well, where we can do the uh, central nervous system, I think that we can actually prolong our lives by having duplicate parts and maybe a complete duplicate body where we can just transfer our consciousness. So I think that'll be more possible, but it still begs the whole question. Cause like if we have that kind of thing, it's still transfer of what we've got here into something else. It's not the development of actual intelligence. No. You know, so I think that artificial intelligence is going to come along a little bit later. And I think, like I said before, it's going to be an accident. I don't know how it's going to happen, but it's going to be an accident. And when it happens, we'll know it because whatever becomes artificially intelligent, it's going to let us know. It's going well, to there's, a, know. there's a series. I don't even know if it's – I saw it a couple of years ago on Netflix called Altered Carbon, which basically they your consciousness or your awareness – is slipped like in the disc into the back of your brain, like you said. But the way it works is if you have a lot of money, you get a nice body, a great body. And if you don't, you get whatever body you can yes. get. Science fiction movies, they deal with those themes. And it's always like, now, let me ask you, try and take you, over. You, know, you said, you pointed out, if they ever develop that technology, what you said, which is basically life extension, because right. I don't think that's, I, I'm, this is, I, I don't want to be, and a pessimist because I'm an optimist, but still, I think that the majority well, of the population is not going to have access to that science. 
Yeah, I remember there's been some films that dealt with that. There was that one film, Matt Damon was in it, where the people were left on Earth and the people were living off-world. Yes. They had yes. the cure to all these diseases, but they weren't sharing with anybody. Right. Exactly. At all. You know, science fiction movies love to do that. Like, they like to view it as being out of control and stuff like that. I'm not so sure that that is what would happen in the future because – why would they do like that? Like if they developed the technology, they went to off world, would they be such bitter, hateful people? They do that or they won't want it or they would share. I would say that if they evolved to the point where they had that kind of technology, their humanity would perhaps evolve. You're hoping, you're hoping they would, their humanity I'm, would kick in and say, an well, we can't. I'm an optimist. I'm an optimist. I would hope so. But it goes back to what we've been talking about, something larger than yourself. In order to help people on earth and not just hoard it for yourself, you have to believe in something called humans, in the humanity. Yes, you yes. You, you can't humanity. just be me, me being at the top, having yes. all the money, you know, living, the, you know, like you have to believe that something more than just you. And that's I just know. the thing that I believe. And that's sometimes that's, uh, that's something that, is in short supply lately, but unfortunately. I'm going to be optimistic. Let's be an op let's be optimistic about this. I want anyway. to end this show on an optimistic note. Yes, I hope people come out and read. It's full of all sorts of speculative ideas. It's really fun. What I uh, one of my goals whenever I write my book is to encourage people to go back to those original sources. So, like if you're reading about Gibson or Asimov or Lovecraft, I'm hoping that you'll be so enthralled by the discussions, the issues raised, and the thesis. That the people reading it will want to actually read those source documents. Like get get to the bookstore. Asimuth, all his stuff is in print. I was in the bookstore mm -hmm. the other day. They got the Foundation series, all the robot novels. Lovecraft, he's all his stuff is in print. Gibson just came yes. out with a new book called Agency, which is the second one of his peripheral series. He's ninety some years old, so he's got a third book to write. I hope that people read it and they're so excited by the ideas and by the works I deal with that they'll want to get out and read those yes. original documents. And if they do that, it's going to expand their mind. I think. John, for my podcast listeners, what's the website that they can go to to find out more information about your work? Oh, about me? I'm, I'm real lucky when it comes to my website because I don't have to have any silly numbers in there or anything. Mine is actually just johnlstedman.com. You go. That's it. You go there. I got like my blog spot, John L. Stedman at blog spot. It's all John L. Stedman at Twitter. You know, I mean, I got lucky, you know, but you have to use the L whenever you look at me. All you have to do is go into go to the Google line, put John L. Stedman. It'll give you all the access you'd want. You know, you can access my books. They have little individual pictures of each of my books. So you can go get those books if you want. You can go on my website, my blog, Facebook. Twitter, you can go look at all the different places. You can look at book reviews. It's all out there, you know, so you can find find all that stuff out there. I had some point that I wanted to make. I just didn't want to blow my horn about that one. But, oh, yes, you have to use the L, John L. Stedman. Yes, right, to, instead if of just you, John Stedman. If you use John Stedman, you're going to get this old man who's just died recently. And he's an <laughs> oh, my God. He peaked like in the 1960s. He was in a movie called The Original Hills Have Eyes, where he played okay, a, yeah, a mutant. But he's played since then. He's just played like bit parts in movies. His name's John Stedman, and he plays like drunks, rummies, okay. and bums and stuff. And so he always has bit parts in all these movies. But he's done enough movies where he's got his little knowledge panel. So if you click okay. John Stedman, you'll get a picture of him. And it irritated me a little bit for a while because. I want to just dominate John Stedman, but I always use a John L. Stedman. So you have to use the L 
and stuff like that until I become more important than John Steadman. And you, you know, eclipse him. Yeah, until, until I eclipse him. But I don't want to eclipse him here because he's a nice, I'm sure he was a very nice old man. He made his mark. You know, he's considered an authority figure. There's a lot. You know, of it's really funny because some of these secondary characters are more well-known. People sometimes yeah. don't know their name, but they, I know that guy. He's been in a bunch of movies. Well, I got a friend that his, his last name is, uh, he has a different last name, but he thought he'd get a cooler name. By the way, if you're going to actually write something or do something, use your own name. Yeah, Always use your own name. You know why? Don't change your name because, like, say later on in life, you're, you're my age and some old girlfriend of yours or somebody that knew you in high school wondered, I wonder how John L. Steadman's doing. I wonder if he made it. And then if you use your own name, they'll say, oh, my God, he really did make it. And then they're going to feel like, I never <laughs> I never made it. But if you change your name, they're never going to find it. So then they're going to always be hoping. You say, well, at least I didn't fail like that John L. Steadman character, right? But I had a friend. He, he changed his last name to Isaac. And he thought that'd uh -huh. be real. He thought it'd be real cool, right? He's got a website. He writes classical music. So Frederick Isaac, that's his name, right? And what happened is, unfortunately, there's a Isaac Neville, Isaac Neville Chamberlain, who's actually prime minister to South Africa. So, so he he can't get his own knowledge. You know, knowledge panels are those little panels that come yeah. up. Yeah. You probably have one yourself because you've written several books and you have podcasts and stuff. So you probably have one up there too, but he can't get his own knowledge panel. Like it'll come up sometimes, but then every once in a while it'll be replaced by uh, Neville. <laughs> Neville he's, I, he's, I, he goes to the politician. Yeah. Well, he's more famous and stuff. His yeah, stuff is in black and white too and stuff. So I'm really glad that I decided to keep it John L. Stem. I was thinking of picking a more cool name, you know, like when I did the first book, the magical kind of name. And stuff but my editor said no she said keep your own name she said you'll regret it later she said the only time you use a pseudonym is when you got a really terrible name like seymour butts or something like that. I mean, <laughs> there, there was the example that was the example she gave she said well, yeah the pseudonym if your name is so bad it's just, like yeah we got to save you from that name <laughs> yeah but so it, i'm lucky so john stemmett all they have to do is type that and if if people want to get copies of my books that's great because i get royalty Pay, okay. Payments from that. I am a kind of. I do have that business degree, and also I pay attention to things like, uh, you know, the bottom line. You know, they talk. Yeah. Oh, Very important talk. in life. Yeah. Bottom keep, line. You have to keep the lights on, but also you have to kind of ensure that you can go out to the sushi restaurant every two weeks. Because my daughter yeah. is a big fan of sushi. She usually takes yes. me out to it. But real sushi is not inexpensive. So I got, oh, no. I got to keep those royalty payments coming in. But seriously, they're really fun reading. They're easy to understand, jargon-free, and uh, very fun to read. They're all fun. I always yes. gear them in my – I don't write for academics. I, a lot of academics like my stuff. I got a lot of endorsements from academics for this new one. In fact, I got a really good review from the Journal of Science Fiction Studies, which is the premier – science fiction journal in the whole United States. Okay. DeRay University in Pennsylvania. So I think it's Pennsylvania. So I, I get good reviews. I get good. I have some endorsement, got some endorsement, some real good high ranked academic stuff, but I write for just regular people. that just mm -hmm. like a fun book to read a juicy yes. book full of images, speculations, and just things to hold on to, things to just get excited about. I write yes. for though for everybody, you know. So it's for everybody. And I got to stop blowing, blowing my horn. This is horrible. This this will keep going. Because of course, it's what's what's wrong with that. Especially, should, let me tell you something. Especially when you invest yourself in producing I, this, it's, it's like, an it's an unattractive quality. Superb self confidence is one thing, but 
when you start blowing your horn too much, you gain to the point where you're excessively egotistical, you know, and I don't want to get to that point. It's not an attractive quality. It's bad enough that I was gorgeous in the nineties. Now I look like this, right? <laughs> I don't want to develop unattractive qualities and personalities in addition to an unattractive uh, exterior, you know, that won't do. That just won't do. <laughs> <laughs> it just won't do. I, I'm I mean, telling you. You look quite beautiful yourself here. But oh, like, thank you. you know, so it <laughs> but really let me tell you something. I, I, personality is. But you know, no, I have a pretty decent personality. I, you know, but but you know what? At the end of the day, and I think, believe it or not, there's a difference between conceit and believing in your work, in your creation, because that's what it is. It's your creation. Yeah, I believe in it. I believe in it. I'm, I'm very happy with my life. I've realized all my dreams. I have a daughter that's 10 times more beautiful than I was. My wife is 20 years younger. So, you know, I've, life has been kind to me and stuff, you know, but I remember those days in the 90s where I was just so gorgeous. All the women. But you know what? It comes for all, all of us. Nobody, are, nobody gets spared. I'm sorry. I, I don't I care. You a, can nip and tuck and Botox your you way can. out of for a few years. but. I dated also. Oh, that was beautiful. I got the full benefit of being young and beautiful. I can look back. You know what? Some people never get, some people are young and they're never beautiful though. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Some of them wait, you know, they'll say, well, I'd rather be intelligent stuff. And then then suddenly they turn around, they're 70 years old and say, what the hell was I doing? What was I thinking? (laughs) Why why didn't I get out of there? Yeah. It's like too late now. Too late now. RPD and now I'm just an old gross and I haven't even realized yeah. my dream yet, for God's sake. Yeah, yeah, there's a point. I'm sorry, I hate to say it, there's a point of no return where it's like too late, man. That boat yeah. sailed a long time ago. Yeah. You so, should have done it while then and just go for you broke. You can't just wait. Well, I'm 40. I still got time. Well, when you're 40, yeah. you're in dangerous territory. Okay, when yeah. you're 50, and 50, okay, yeah, we can make some consent. When you're past 60, forget it. Forget yeah. it. Find well, see, that's what I'm saying, though. If, if, you, if you lived your life the way you wanted to when you were younger. When you get there, you're like, yeah, that was great. But I, I, I had my good times that I could look well, back I'm on. I'm glad that everything came together because when I was younger, I wasn't as good of a writer. So at least I realized my dream. I'm at the peak of my thing. I've got a third book coming up. So at least I've done that at a time where I can really appreciate. So I'm. that's why I'm optimistic. I'm a pretty happy guy. I'm Let me ask happy. you, just because I know, do you have a fourth book percolating? Yes, I do. The fourth book, I'm going to study H.P. Lovecraft's magical persona, a character they use to answer those four questions that I talked about before. And mm-hmm. it's going to be a multi-author study because he was heavily influenced by Edgar Allan Poe. So yes. I'm going to look at the title of that one's going to be H.P. Lovecraft's magical persona from Poe, Hawthorne, that's Nathaniel Hawthorne, and M.R. James to the Cthulhu mythos. And the first okay. part, the first part, I'm going to look at the writings of of three people that influenced Lovecraft heavily in his conception of the magical persona. In the second part, it, are you, my books are usually triple, like this second one was part one, two, and three also. And this one's going to be part two. It's going to look at Lovecraft. I'm going to look at seven works where he, he creates the uh, magical persona based on his inspired by these other writers. And then he takes it into new directions to actually uh, deal with those issues that I was talking about. And then the third part is going to be the post-Lovecraftian, where I look at after Lovecraft's death, how the Cthulhu mythos evolved mm-hmm. using the same magical persona. And then finally, my last chapter is on Ray Bradbury, who doesn't get okay. enough but I Ray love Bradbury. Ray Bradbury. He the early heavy, Bradbury, especially. He, he was heavily influenced by H.P. Lovecraft before yes. he became who he was. I'm going to show how 
uh, Bradbury carries on a magical persona in his own way in some yes. of his works. So it's like a multi-author study. It'll be just as much fun to read as my other books, but I'm not going to really write that one yet. Where I try and do it when I get a contract for one book, that's when mm -hmm. I start writing the other one. The other I don't want to. I don't want to write like twenty books or anything like that. Right. So I, I wait until and it's a business. You know, I got that MBA in accounting and finance. So it's that business aspect of me where sell a product, make more. Sell a product, right. make more. You know. So I don't want to get too ahead of myself. I don't want to be sitting in a warehouse with like twenty books. And right. I'm not selling. I've had a lot of good luck. I sold both of those publishing companies. Are really reputable. Good ones. I got a lot of mileage in that first one. The second one, we kind of hurt a little bit by COVID. But now mm -hmm. that's uplifting. I have interviews. I'm going to be doing some signings. And stuff okay. Like that. The goal is to just keep sell one and get another one. Out. So okay. I don't know how uh, long I got. I don't know how long I got. You know, nobody but you does. know what? The writer always, you're always, when you're in a story and you're coming to the end, you're already thinking, and next? there's yeah, it's, but, it's always in the back burner. I'm you know, happy, I'm happiest. I'm taking notes for that fourth one now, but I'm always yeah. happiest. I'm a happy guy anyhow all the time. But Isn't I'm great to be happy. I'm at, yeah, it is. I'm happy. I'm happiest when I'm writing some. I like reading. Yes. I like studying. I like taking notes. But when I'm actually digging into it and putting yes. it stuff, I'm the happiest when I'm doing that. Absolutely. I get it. Believe me, I get it. Again, John, thank you so much. It has absolutely wonderful to speak to you. It's a lot of and fun. Yes, and I will be getting in touch with you next year. And I know that sounds so. You come back and talk to us more about. Uh, be alive. Maybe I'll have that contract by then. We can talk. Yes, about of course. In more detail. It was a great pleasure seeing you. Likewise, take care. I will. Bye bye. Bye bye. Wow, it was wonderful to talk to him because God, yeah. I like Love, Lovecraft. Um, I've read a lot of Lovecraft. And the thing about Lovecraft is you have to understand the, con the times that he was living in and the originality of his ideas, you know, because, you know, when you have people to, um, how can I tell you? When you have other writers, even in the past, that you could say, well, you know, you kind of like get an idea and you, but, what he came up with was like about the only thing, what, what was going on then, you know, um, MR James ghost stories. Yeah. Edgar Allan Poe is dark, but basically it was like macabre ghost story kind of stuff. This whole thing that he went with this pantheon of ancient gods that really didn't like humans and basically were, uh, they could intrude into our world and, uh, Arkham and Miskatonic University, which is, you know, and where he had a whole towns that were hybrids of amphibians and humans. And it was weird, really weird. So for back then when he wrote this, it was like, that is so unusual. It's like, where did he come up with this stuff? And I forgot to ask him, I was going, do you think he channeled any of this? Like some, you know, and uh, it's true. Um, he, uh, he really didn't become truly famous. I mean, I think he was admired by, because he, back then, a lot of the writers, the Weird Tale writers, they um, they had correspondence with each other. And I think he was admired for his originality from other writers. 
but as far as widespread recognition of how original his ideas were, I, he, he didn't get them till after he passed away. And like he said, August Erleth promoted him. And then people started to understand better um, that he had broken out of that traditional uh, ghost story kind of deal. And okay, believe it or not, this is uh, this is my <laughs> my grandson asking me if food is ready because I'm feeding him. Yeah, that's the way it is. But anyway, um, when you um, when you think about it, that this man was writing a hundred years ago and some of the ideas that he came out and you, and you read a lot of his different stories. You have different settings. Uh, one thing I do have to, a lot of his, um, and his stories, there was a very um, strong delineation that these Cthulhu, uh, all these other beings that inhabited this, other dimension were evil. Uh, they were anti-human. In other words, he never looked at them favorably. Like there's, they he 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 basically, um, they were seen as evil and yeah, very powerful and and basically that they could intrude into our world at any time. Uh, but he had some. I mean, he had some way out. What was the one that I just recently read? Uh, God, time out of what was the name of it? It was one where, God, it just escapes me right now. It was a longer short story where basically he has a, a race of beings that, let's say you were a well-known scientist. This is an example. These beings could come in and pluck your spirit out and basically use your body to learn everything that there was at this time period that that person was living in basically. And they would take your being and put you back into one of the bodies of what they were. And by the way, he doesn't describe them as humanoids. They're like a big giant triangle, triangular kind of thing, totally non-human. And you would spend time in their world while their mind resided in your body and basically went on a reconnoitering trip of uh, knowledge, just information gathering. And basically, these, these race of beings could do this back and forth, not only in time, but to different worlds. Okay, take it, that's way out there. For the time that this was produced, this was way out there. So when you read this, yeah, he had his faults uh, on his personal beliefs. But as far as originality, it's like, wow. Wow. Um, very interesting. Yeah, he's a little bit fatalistic, but still. Interesting nonetheless. What can I say? Um, so, guys, again, if you want to listen to any of the podcasts of any of the shows, whether it's Stories of the Supernatural, Night Shade Diary, or Supernatural Storytime, go to MyMidGhostChronicles.com, go to MarlenePardo.com, and I have links there. No commercial interruptions. These are the MP3 files that I host so that you can listen to it from the browser or download the MP3 file with no uh, podcasts, uh, you know, you know, podcast platforms, they sometimes insert their own advertising. You'll have none of that. But I also have links to the different podcast platforms that I'm on. I'm in all of them. iHeartRadio, Spreaker, iTunes, or Apple Podcasts, what they call it, Google Play. 
um, Spotify. I'm on all of those. All right. So I have links, whichever way you want to listen, you're going to find me. Um, so again, I'll, I want to thank you for coming back every week and joining me to speak to all these interesting people, which I think they're interesting. And please come back. I have, again, a lot of either returning guests or new ones, just like John Stemnett, which again, I'm going to have a link to his website on the credits of the show, uh, talking about different stuff. The weirder, the better. Yay. Why be normal, right? Again, take care. And even though it's going to be a little bit staggered, happy new year, happy holidays, whatever. Merry Christmas. Let's finger keep our fingers crossed and hope that 2022 will be better than the last couple of years. Take care.